will keep your Bibles open there at John chapter 6. We're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000 this morning. A few weeks ago, we began a series of lessons on the miracles of Christ, emphasizing that Jesus was the master of miracles. He was the one capable of not only working certain miracles, but all miracles. And these miracles are very important because of what they furnish for us. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why do we study the miracles? Because these events prove to us that he is the Christ. Why do we need to know that he's the Christ? So that you and I can live eternally. We're going to look at six things as we go through John chapter 6. We're only going to be able to take just a little bit of time to look at each of the details. And then we're going to try to summarize it all together. We're going to look at the people that were involved. We're going to look at the predicament they were in, needing of food. We're going to look at the provision the Lord provided for them and their food. The problem that that developed, the picture the Lord used, that of the manna, and then finally the proclamation of Peter that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's begin, first of all, keep your Bibles open. Let's begin at verse 1. And read through verse 4. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. When John says after these things, you have to realize that what he's trying to do is to help us to see the events that are taking place. He wants us to know when, he wants us to know where. He has been in Judea, John chapter 5, he healed the infirm man at the pools of Bethesda. There was following that a great discussion and now what we have is the Lord going back to Galilee. John tells us he's at the Sea of Galilee, which also was known as the Sea of Tiberias, named after the emperor. He tells us the feast of the Jews, the Passover, was near. That tells us it's probably sometime late March, most likely early April. This is a period of time in which the Lord is going to be involved in the, the walking about and the teaching. But I want to c concentrate for just a moment on the people that are following Jesus. We're told that there were a great multitude. And if I'm able to do the best job that I can do, I want to take your mind and put you back to the way it was when Jesus was walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to make you think what was happening, what was going on, so that you can see the full picture here. And in doing so, you have to see the pressure that Jesus is under with regards to the crowds. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea 
And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. Now, folks, I want you to, for just a moment, think about there are people coming from everywhere. Galilee's in the north, but you have people, for instance, in Judea. You have Jerusalem. But then you have even north of that, Tyre and Sidon. Idumea, that's down near the Jordan area. That's, on fact, the east side of the Jordan River. There are people coming from everywhere because they're hearing what Jesus is doing. Verse 9 says, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. The Lord had become so popular, people had gotten where they were so close to him, everybody wanted to touch him, everybody wanted to be around him, and what happens is now it's got to be so careful that you've got to put a little boat so you can get out from the land to get away from the pressure of the crowds. Matthew's account in chapter 14, verse 21 said, now those had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. We talk about the Lord feeding the 5,000. We think, boy, that was a tremendous miracle. But when you consider that only counts the men, that doesn't count their wives. That doesn't count, for instance, maybe the young single ladies. It does not count the children. With just a very conservative estimate, the number of people the Lord fed was probably close to twenty to 25,000 people. I don't know about you, but I'd hate to know I had to feed this crowd this morning. Maybe 300 people. What are you going to do if you've got 3,000, 5,000, 20,000? A huge multitude. Matthew 15, verse 38 there was the next time the Lord's going to feed 4,000 men, again besides the women and the children. But you need to also understand the nature of the crowds. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. That's the body of John the Baptist, by the way. And went and told Jesus, and when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out and saw the great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their diseases. I want to tell you the nature of the crowds is they're going to follow Jesus anywhere he goes. They're so concerned about their children's health, they'll do anything, go anywhere, pay any price to have their child made well. And some of them had experienced diseases and they wanted healings. And they're following Jesus everywhere he goes. And when he looks at the crowd, he's sympathetic with them. In Matthew 15, verse 32, these people have been following the Lord for three days. And it says that he would, they've had nothing to eat and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint along the way. I don't want people to leave because I know they're so hungry. Now there's a lot of people who would sit and listen to their favorite preacher for about an hour 
You know what happens after about an hour? People begin to stop. You want me to tell you what would happen this morning if I were to keep preaching till about 12 o'clock? I know what would happen. Some of you would just kindly dismiss yourself out the back door and head for the restaurant. My stomach's growling. What do you mean that preacher? They had followed Jesus for three days and had eaten nothing. Mark's account in chapter 6, it says Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. When you look at the nature of these crowds, these are people here who are hungry. But they're not only hungry for food, but they're looking for some direction. At the end of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it says these came to Jesus because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was able to provide some guidance, some direction that these people so desperately needed. So he not only had compassion for their diseases, but he had compassion for their spiritual needs as well. John tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain. When I go to Matthew 5, 1 and 2, and I read about the Sermon on the Mount, it says he went up on a mountain and sat down and opened his mouth and taught them, saying. You notice the indistinct way, a mountain. But now when you get here to John 6, it's the mountain. Just like in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up to the mountain. I can't prove it, but it's my opinion that the Mount of Beatitudes where the Lord delivered that great Sermon on the Mount became the place that people would go to and to listen to Him. But the second thing that you notice is there's a predicament that's arisen here. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Then Jesus lifted up His eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward Him, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he, this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, you have to put yourself there. This is a deserted place. There's not a McDonald's on this corner and a Burger King over here and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh no, this is a deserted place. There's no place to buy food. So he's going to ask Philip, what should we do? Where are we going to get these provisions? Well, there's four possible solutions that are presented in the text. The first one is, should we send the people away? Let everybody provide for their own needs. Let them buy their own food. In Matthew 14, 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. That's reasonable. That's what most of us will do here in just a little while. We'll find some way to feed ourselves. You see, Jesus was concerned that the people might faint along the way. He didn't want to say, let them go buy for themselves. What happens if you send out twenty to 25,000 people and these people haven't eaten for three days? Somebody's going to get weak and fall along the way. 
Jesus doesn't want to be responsible for that. The second is proposed by Philip, even though he recognizes that this is an untenable, unworkable solution, but he proposes it anyway, and that is to raise enough money for someone to go and buy food and bring it back. Now, that's not unreasonable. You remember John chapter 4 when Jesus was the woman at the well at Sychar. The disciples went into the town to buy food, but Jesus stayed there with the woman at the well. Sending people to buy food is sometimes a reasonable thing to do. But Philip's response is, 200 denarii is not enough for everybody to have just a little bit. Now, to put that in our understanding, that's about anywhere from 8 to 10 months worth of salary. You figure what you make in a month, multiply that times 8 to 10, and you got some kind of idea of how much it would cost just to give everybody a little bit. Just calculate in your mind here, what if today we had to feed everybody in this audience for everybody to have enough to be sustain them for a while. You say, well, that might get pretty expensive. Even if you were just go buy the basics and prepare it, even that would take a lot. A third possible solution comes from Andrew. And just like Phillips, this is not really a solution because where are you going to get eight, ten months worth of salary? And so Andrew brings a little boy, a little lad, and he has evidently his lunch, which is comprised of five barley loaves and two fish. Don't think of the big king-size loaf of bread at Walmart. In fact, most likely these are the kind of bread that has no leaven in it, and we would call them crackers. More than likely, that's just like five little small crackers that you might get to go with a salad. But the thing about it is they're barley, which was the cheapest of the cheap. This is what a poor young boy would have to eat. When you think of the fish, don't think of a two to three pound catfish. Think of sardines, probably pickled. The five barley loaves and the two fish could have probably fit in the palm of the hand of this one little boy. I think it's remarkable. That's the only thing you could find to eat among all those people. Everybody else had eaten their food, and here's this one little boy, and but what is that among so many? And the fourth solution is the one the Lord chose. He already knew what he was going to do. He already had foresight in mind. He knew how he was going to feed this multitude of people. He had plans already in place. Why do you think Andrew happened to find the little boy? Now let's look at verses 10 through 14. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. And so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them, uh, the, the disciples and the disciples of those sitting down, likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted so when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets 
with the fragments of the five barley loaves of which they were left over by, by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This truly, or this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now we're told that there's a place with a lot of grass. That tells us also that it's very likely about April. The parallel accounts of Matthew and Mark tells us the grass is green. But let me explain a little bit about the Lord's method of doing this. There's some logistics involved. We read in Mark's account in Mark 6, he commanded them to make them all sit down on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. This way, no one's going to be overlooked. You've got a group of 50. You've got a group of 100. But it also involved the ability to make sure that everything was orderly done. Let me remind you, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40 says, Let all things be done decently and in order. God doesn't do things by means of chaos. The Lord gave thanks, John 6, verse 23, after the Lord had given thanks, they began to eat the food. The Lord then multiplied the loaves and the fishes for everyone. It says he took them, he distributed to the disciples and they to those sitting down and then they gathered up the fragments. You know, when you're reading a passage of scripture and you think about how the Lord did this, this is a miracle. Did the Lord pinch off a little bit of that barley loaf and give it to one of the disciples and then they, in turn, did it multiply then or how was that happening? Best illustration I can give you, it comes from the Old Testament from 1 Kings chapter 17. You remember the widow of Zarephath? You remember her son, how she had nothing? The prophet Elijah had said, I need you to make me some cakes to eat. She said, I don't have anything but just this little oil and this little flour and we're just going to eat it and die. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of the flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she and he her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. You see, the Lord, as he multiplied those loaves and fishes, each time as they were divided, they didn't cease. They continued to provide then the Lord said, I want you to gather up what's left. Nothing should be lost. Many of you were reared in a time which things were not as plentiful as they are today. I'm sure many of you especially can remember going to your grandmother's house and having a drawer where there was little pieces of tinfoil, where there were screws, where there were all kinds of little things. And the old phrase, you, want, you waste not, you want not. And so the Lord commanded that they take up the fragments, and they found 12 baskets of them. Now there's a problem that's developed. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed into the mountain by himself alone. There's a problem now. Who is this worker of miracles? This man that took these five barley loaves and these two fish and he multiplied them, who is he? Some of the people standing by said, this is the prophet. In their minds, they go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, verse 18, where Moses had said that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren, and him you shall hear. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak what to them all that I command him. You see, in their minds, though, the prophet was not the Messiah, was not the Christ. He was a different person. How do I know that? Because in John chapter 1, as they asked John the Baptist who he is, they said, he confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him then, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. You see, the prophet in Christ was different. In John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, the crowd said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. You see, they didn't combine the two together as a reality. But others see him as a reluctant king. Here he is. He stood up and he's been a provider for them. And that's what they're looking for. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take Jesus and make him king, whether he wants to be king or not. In Matthew 11 and verse 12, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Their idea of the kingdom and Jesus as a king was going to rid them of the control of the Romans. Jesus was going to have none of that. So could this be the Christ? That's the question. Is this the Son of God who's come down in the likeness of men? That's the real issue. So we're going to have a picture given to us. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, You seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Oh, do you see the, the statement that Jesus is making? God the Father has set his seal on him. Now drop down to verses 30 through 36. They said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now here's the picture. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. When you read that always, keep on giving us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And you take verses 26 and 27 where he says, you didn't believe because of the signs. You came because you ate and were filled. And Jesus says, now you don't really believe. What he is doing is he is pointing out how superficial their faith was. As long as the Lord was giving them something, providing them something, oh, great, wonderful. Now here's the problem. Just like in the case with Moses and the manna, God gave them what they needed only for a particular time. When the devil tempted Jesus to turn stones to bread, he refused. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus says, okay, now folks, you need to understand, I fed you because you were hungry and you needed food, but that's not what it's all about. I am here as the Son of God, as the Christ and he says, you look at the manna, God provided manna for their spiritual or for their physical needs, but what's important is the spiritual needs. Now here's what arises out of this is some complaints. You read in verses 41 and 42, then the Jews complained about him because he says, I am ready to come down from heaven. They looked at him and said, we know his mom and dad. We know where he came from. How can he say he came down from heaven? Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? There's a real challenge going on here. Who are these men? They're the Jews. But now notice with me verses 60 and 61. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew this in himself, that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Now you have not just the, the multitudes, but you have some of the people who are actually believing in Jesus saying, you know, we don't really know if we like this at all. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. All the crowd is starting to disperse. Which is going to bring us to the final part of this. And that's verses 67 through 69. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's the one who responds. He's always, it seems, the one who stands up and says, this is the answer. Remember Matthew 16? When Jesus said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says it again. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no other viable alternative. You have the words of eternal life. Let me ask you a question. To whom else will you go for salvation this morning? You can't go to Muhammad. He's a dead prophet in a tomb. You can't go to the Buddha. He is a dead figure. There's only one who can provide eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Second of all, we believe and know that you are the Christ. That's what this is all about. That's what these signs were for. That you may know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you might have life in his name. For just a minute or two, I want to talk about some observations from this, some things to take away. Benevolence can open doors, but benevolence can't keep them open. You know, someone who's in genuine, real need, by doing a good deed for them, you can open a door. But you have to remember what Jesus said when Mary anointed his body, John chapter 12. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. This church could be the kind that goes out and says, okay, we want to take care of your need. We want to take care of your need. We want to take care of your need. And you know what? If you triple the budget that this church has, we couldn't meet everybody's request that just calls in. Not enough money there. You see, the Lord was not trying to put everybody on a welfare program. That wasn't this at all. These were people who were hungry and need. They'd followed Jesus for three days. And he was going to provide them a meal. He didn't keep on providing them a meal. In fact, he said, some of you are here just because you ate and were filled. That brings up the second observation. Grace and generosity can be abused. The Lord understood that these people were not there for the right reason, many of them. And because of that, he pointed out, I'm not going to be abused. They said, Lord, give us this food always. No, I'll give you the food of spiritual life always. third observation is the Lord often exposed a false fidelity. When someone says, oh, I love the Lord. I want to be saved. And then the Lord would look at them and make sure they understood that there was more to it than that. You remember Mark chapter 10, there's a young ruler comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. He says, all those I've done since my youth. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. The response was in verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Oh, you mean you really didn't want it that badly. The Lord sometimes would, would pull out and say, well, how do you know that? Many will line up for the Lord when there's receiving to be done, 
those same people will be missing when sacrifice is required. You don't believe that? We can announce this coming weekend we're going to go to some theme park and we're going to have fun. We'll have to rent three buses, take four cars, and won't have room for everybody. You can announce we're going to have some sort of a spiritual event and we're going to have to beg, we're going to have to plead, we're going to have to cajole. Oh, it's different. You see what happens in John chapter 5 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does something very important. He points out that you not only feed the body, but you feed the soul. And it's his words that feed the soul. Jesus will not force anyone to be a follower of his. In fact, he will allow people to walk away. You remember John 6, verse 66? And would you also go away? Does this offend you? Does this... Does this make you feel uncomfortable in what he's teaching? There were people who walked with the Lord no more. But let me tell you that if you listen to the Lord, you follow him, you're devoted to him because of who he is, it would be foolish to walk away from the only source of eternal life. Now let me tell you about this song of invitation we're going to sing. The title of the song is All to Jesus I Surrender. You think about the song as we sing it. If you're not a Christian, it's time to give up and give in and say, I want to be a child of God. I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. You come forward. We'll let you confess your faith in Christ and baptize you for the remission of your sins. If you're a child of God and you look at your life and you say, you know what, I've been like those people following Jesus. It's all been superficial for me. It's time for me to say, I'm tired of my sin. I want to be saved. I want to do what's right. Because you're a Christian, you can come back home. Would you respond as together we stand and sing?